It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hey! Which one of you is Jack Curry? I'm Jack Curry. You're under arrest for the murder of Bobby Holland. Put your hands on top of your head. Well, I didn't. Now! You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. Hands down. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you at no cost. The Miranda warnings have become embedded in our society thanks to shows like Law & Order. It's clear that the landmark Miranda decision bars coerced confessions from being used in court. But what's not clear is whether a police officer who fails to give Miranda warnings can be sued for damages for violating a suspect's constitutional rights. This week at the Supreme Court, the justices debated whether Miranda provides a constitutional right. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett pointed out that in a case affirming Miranda, the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist stopped short of calling it a constitutional right. Justice Rehnquist, he would have been very aware of the debate we're having today. And when it came to Dickerson, he was also somebody careful with his words, Uh, He didn't say Miranda uh, is in the Constitution. He talked about constitutional underpinnings, constitutional basis. So Dickerson didn't ever use the word constitutional right. It seemed very carefully worded to say constitutional rule or constitutionally required. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. Jordan, explain the central question here. So the question here is whether the failure to give Miranda warnings can give rise to a federal civil rights lawsuit. Now, for such a lawsuit to go forward, there needs to have been a violation of a constitutional right. And so that's what raises the question is whether this Miranda right is a constitutional right or something else. And that's been a long simmering question, and that was the focus of this argument. As you said, Miranda was subject to a lot of criticism in the 80s and 90s, and a decision by Chief Justice Rehnquist put that to rest. So tell us about that decision. 
Right. So that was really interesting, the Dickerson case in 2000. As you mentioned, Rehnquist and other conservatives had long been critical of not just Miranda, but it was really a part of a series of these Warren Court era criminal procedure decisions, part of this so-called criminal procedure revolution. And so these really became the opinions that were not liked on the conservative side and really enemies to be taken down over time. And so that didn't wind up happening exactly with Miranda. And in a 2000 case, Dickerson, Rehnquist actually wrote an opinion, a 7-2 opinion, effectively upholding Miranda when he obviously could have disagreed with it. And so really the question in this case now is what exactly did Dickerson mean in some subsequent cases as well? And so it's not just the fact that Rehnquist didn't overturn Miranda in that Dickerson case, but what exactly was he doing there? And so that's really where a lot of this case is going to be decided. The central question you mentioned, whether Miranda warnings are a constitutional right, what were the justices' concerns and the Rehnquist opinion? What did they say it meant? And so really delving into the specifics of that Dickerson opinion by Rehnquist, it was pointed out by some of the more conservative justices that Rehnquist was careful with his words and didn't exactly refer to Miranda as a constitutional right. He referred to it having constitutional underpinning, sort of a constitutional essence to it, if you will, but specifically not saying constitutional right. And that distinction could wind up being very important in this case, because remember, the question is, is Miranda a constitutional right that can give rise to such a federal civil rights suit like the one that Mr. Tico is trying to bring here? The chief justice clerk for Rehnquist, what did he say about the opinion and Rehnquist's intention? So I found Roberts to be interesting at this argument because he said a couple of things that I really think went both ways. So on the one hand, Roberts pointed out that if it wasn't for the Constitution, you wouldn't have this Miranda ruling and you wouldn't be able to keep unworn confessions out of evidence. So he asked Vega's lawyer, why isn't this a right that's secured by the Constitution? And so that type of question could lead one to think that, well, maybe Roberts is thinking along the lines of the plaintiff wanting to be able to sue here. But on the other hand, Roberts told the lawyer for the plaintiff how Rehnquist was someone who was careful with his words. And so in the Dickerson case, how Rehnquist pointed out, or at least didn't explicitly say Miranda is a constitutional right. He talked about constitutional underpinnings, constitutional basis. And so Roberts, who clerked for Rehnquist, said things that could have gone both ways at the argument. But if his words to Tico's lawyer are to be representative of how he views the case, then he's someone who maybe doesn't see Miranda as this constitutional right, which can give rise to a federal civil rights suit. Did you get a feel for how many of the justices might decide that Miranda does not provide a constitutional right? So I think that it was fair to say that some comments from Kavanaugh and Barrett were also along the lines of the chief justice. An interesting part of the argument to me was an exchange between the deputy's lawyer and Justice Thomas, because the deputy is pointing to a case that came after Dickerson called Chavez, where a plurality of the court, meaning less than a majority, 
effectively endorsed the view that Miranda isn't a constitutional right exactly and is more of what's called this prophylactic rule, a preventative rule, not a constitutional right per se. And so at the argument, the deputy's lawyer brings that up. And so you might think Justice Thomas, who's actually the one who wrote that plurality opinion in Chavez, might be wanting to along with that. But it was interesting to me that Thomas himself pointed out He couldn't get a majority in that case. Let's listen to part of that exchange. And the Chavez plurality, I think, addresses this issue head on, and it says that because Miranda's a judicially created prophylactic rule, the violation of that rule doesn't violate anyone's constitutional rights. And that's consistent, as I was saying earlier, with what the Court had previously said in cases like Payne and Elstad. Yeah, but I couldn't get a majority in Chavez. So the uh, uh, that I don't know how much that does for you. so that's not to say that if Thomas can get more people on board this time, that maybe now he can accomplish what he wasn't able to accomplish in the Chavez case. And so he just might, given changes in the court between 2003 and now. And so whether that's exactly going to happen, I think, will remain to be seen, but it's certainly a possibility. That's what happens when you're on the court this long. <laughs> you see changes. Has the court in the past been cutting back on these kinds of suits against police officers under this? Oh, I think that's certainly fair to say as a general matter. As Kavanaugh put it at the argument, in some ways they're looking to not extend precedence. And so whether someone sees that as even cutting back on them or at least not extending them, it's certainly fair to say that no precedents are going to be extended at the court. But certainly in these types of suits, I think it's fair to say that the court certainly hasn't been in the business of expanding them generally. I don't know if this case is necessarily going to fall into that category. It's really going to be interesting to see how it turns out. But you have to think that anybody who's trying to bring a claim like Tico in this case, or defending the type of claim that Tico's bringing, because it was actually the deputy who petitioned for cert here, that they have a tough road at this court. Not impossible, but certainly a tough road. It'll be so interesting to see what happens here. Thanks so much, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. Ms. Green, did you advocate to President Trump to impose martial law as a way to remain in power? I don't recall. So you're not denying you did it. You just don't remember. I don't remember. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's answer to question after question. She didn't remember her own statements or social media posts, whether it was advising former President Donald Trump to invoke martial law or calling on supporters to flood the Capitol building. And the Georgia congresswoman denied calling Speaker Nancy Pelosi a traitor to her country until the plaintiff's lawyer showed a quotation from her saying that. Do you think that Speaker Pelosi is a traitor to the country? Right. Uh, you're, I'm not answering that question. It's speculation. It's you, you've, you've said that, haven't you, Ms. Green, that she's a traitor to the country? No, I haven't said that. Okay. Put up Plaintiff's Exhibit 5, please. Oh, no, wait. Hold on now. I believe by not upholding the, uh, securing the border, that that violates her oath of office. Green is set to appear on the Republican ballot for the state's May 24th primary and has been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. 
But voters in her district have said that Green helped facilitate the January 6th insurrection, making her ineligible for re-election under a rarely cited section of the 14th Amendment dealing with insurrection or rebellion. Green has repeatedly denied aiding or engaging in an insurrection and has filed a lawsuit alleging that the law the voters are using to challenge her eligibility is itself unconstitutional. Here's Ron Fain, legal director of Free Speech for People, which is representing Georgia voters, and James Bopp, Green's lawyer. She urged and encouraged and helped facilitate violent resistance to our own government, our democracy, and our Constitution. And in doing so, she engaged in exactly the type of conduct that triggers disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is to say, she engaged in insurrection. The challengers will try to use the First Amendment-protected political speech of Representative Green as evidence of, quote, engaging in an insurrection or rebellion, that's unconstitutional and should not be allowed. Joining me is Richard Brafald, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us about this unusual use of the 14th Amendment. So there's a provision in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, which was adopted by Congress and ratified by the people right after the Civil War that was designed to deny people who had taken the oath of office of the United States, the senators or congressmen, and then who had joined up with the South in the Civil War and basically went into rebellion. The language the Constitution uses, anybody who actually swore an oath of allegiance to the United States as a member of Congress and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States would be denied the ability to serve in Congress again unless Congress by two-thirds vote said that they could. I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that, but that's the essence of it. If you took an oath of office, the member of Congress, but then you engaged in insurrection or rebellion, you are not eligible to serve again in Congress. And the argument that's been raised with respect to a number of members of Congress who, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, been brought by, by voters in their districts, is that she and Madison Corthon from North Carolina and a couple of congressmen from Arizona were connected to the attack on Congress January 6th in connection with the Electoral College, that they were either involved in the planning of it or they knew about it or in some way or form gave aid and comfort to the insurrection. So that's the argument, is that because she gave an aid and comfort to the insurrection on January 6th, she is not eligible to be placed on the ballot. This argument has failed with respect to Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina and was just last week thrown out with respect to two congressmen, including Gozar in Arizona. But the federal judge in Georgia said there was enough there in the allegations that Marjorie Taylor Greene would have to go before an administrative law judge, a state judge in Georgia, and basically be examined by the groups that are arguing she should be disqualified about her role in the events of January 6th. And she said a lot of, you know, rather inflammatory things about the election, but I've denied being involved in the planning or, or, or supported that there would be violence. When was the last time the 14th Amendment was used in this way? I'm not sure that it's been used at all, but certainly it's, there's, there's very little about it that is known. I mean, you know, it, it may have been used in incidents in the immediate post-Civil War period. I'm not familiar with there being any modern cases using it. And so it, it's, it's elicited a lot of debate. There was an op-ed piece in the Times the other day saying that it's not self-enforcing, that Congress would have to pass a law 
there's an argument that's been made by Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyer, and I think it was also for the same lawyer for Madison Cawthorn, that Congress, several years after this amendment was passed, passed something known as the Amnesty Act, freeing most people of the, um, the restrictions of the 14th Amendment, except for members of Congress who had served in Congress during the opening years of the Civil War, and people like that. On the other hand, some people have argued, well, that doesn't make any sense, that, that, you know, that it's not clear that they intended to not have this ever apply again in the future. So there is an argument that that law, the Amnesty Act of 1872, uh, which seemed to limit it to people who had actually been in Congress in the 1861-1863 period, that would basically mean that, that this amendment could never be enforced. So there's a debate, you know, as to whether or not this is self-executing, that is to say whether the provision itself does the work or you need a law in Congress, whether the law Congress passed in the 1870s, basically allowing most people who had lower-level positions who took the oath, like the people in the Army who took the oath and then switched to the Confederate side, were free, other than people who sat in Congress in that period. And then, of course, there's the question as to whether or not what she and these other members of Congress did count as giving aid and comfort to the insurrection, whether it was an insurrection and whether she was involved in it, especially in the absence of any formal indictments by the Justice Department of anybody accusing them of having participated in an insurrection. So it seems to me it's kind of a stretch, but it's an interesting argument. The defense attorney objected to a lot of the questions of Marjorie Taylor Greene by saying it violated her right of free speech. So where does free speech end and insurrectionist talk begin? That's, of course, one of the big underlying question here involving not just her, but many of the people who were involved in the events of January 6th who argue that what they were doing was speech. Obviously, a lot of them went well beyond speech. In her case, you know, we don't know. I mean, you know, we don't know enough about what she was doing behind the scenes as to whether or not she was actively supporting an attack on Congress or was, as she says, only supporting a protest of what she claims she believes was a fraudulent vote. And it's just very hard to know. I know that the January 6th committee in Congress is exploring some of this. But, you know, that is one question as to how far, in terms of the kinds of statements and actions she took, how far did she get beyond sort of permissible political opposition and enter into insurrection? I mean, you can ask that, that questions come up again with kind of members of the Trump administration and maybe President Trump himself. The judge doesn't make the final call here. Explain what happens. So this is before an administrative law judge in Georgia. He will then make a recommendation to the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, who has the ultimate decision as to whether or not to take her off the ballot. And I think that's got to be reasonably soon because they have a primary coming up. So, again, this is, I think, the only one of the, the cases that have been brought which has gotten this far. Uh, in other cases, the federal judges sort of dismiss them outright. But the, the federal district court judge in Georgia said there's enough here at least to support a hearing. Some people argue that this is the wrong way to go about this, that if they want to get rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene, they should work to get her voted out of office. Yeah, I mean, you could argue. I mean, I understand that point, And certainly there's a concern that if you do it this way, she just becomes a martyr. On the other hand, if she lives in a, you know, she's in a solidly one-party district, it's hard to down to primary. And if she is, in fact, engaged in, you know, insurrectionary treasonous activities, there's a, there is grounds for removal, although it could be that the better way to do it would be for Congress to do it. And, of course, given the partisanship of Congress, that's unlikely to happen. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a tension here. It's both at the level of speech versus rebellion, but also kind of the level of politics and law. Is this ultimately so political that, you know, it's for the voters 
or for Congress as a whole? And do we are we comfortable with judges making these kinds of decisions? But there is a constitutional provision there that does say that people who have you know engaged in insurrection or aid and gave an aid and comfort to insurrection should not, and having previously taken an oath. Um, of office uh, to support the Constitution, and specifically including members of Congress, that breaking that oath in this way disqualifies them. So there is that provision there. Rich, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in New York with the maps? Yeah, yeah. It's a little complicated. So in 2014, New York State amended its Constitution. The voters approved it to move New York towards an independent redistricting commission-type process. And a commission was created uh, with our Appoint Republican and Democratic appointees, and they were charged with developing maps for the two state chambers of the state legislature and the congressional districts. Um, and they were told there was a process was laid out in the Constitution for them to do that, and they, of course, needed to have a supermajority of their commission that so there'd be at least some people from both parties supporting their recommendation. Well, they couldn't do that. They, the commission was divided, and so there was not a recommendation. In fact, they submitted two maps. Two sets of maps, I should say. The, let's call them the Democratic maps and the Republican maps, uh, each, each of which got a vote of half the commission, but not a majority, uh, certainly not the supermajority the Constitution required. The state Constitution then said that the, that the legislature is supposed to either accept those maps, the map, or reject it, but they can't amend it. And if they reject it, the commission is supposed to send a second set of maps. Well, what happened this time is the legislature said, well, here we've got these, this commission is divided. Forget it. We're just going to write our own. Uh, and so the commission, so they, re- they rejected the commission's maps, didn't wait around for a second set of maps to come from the commission, but just did their own. And those maps, the legislature right now has Democratic majorities in both chambers, Democratic governor. They passed maps which um, many people believe favor Democrats. Uh, those maps have been challenged. Um, and the trial court basically, uh, it's interesting, the Republicans brought the challenges. They challenged only the congressional maps and the maps for the state Senate, not the map for the state lower house. The trial court uh, concluded that the maps were, in effect, doubly unconstitutional. One was that they were, um, um, that they violated the constitutional procedure of how, because there was never a second recommendation from the Independent Redistricting Commission. And also, and so that led to throwing out even the maps for the lower house, which the Republicans hadn't challenged. And then he also said that uh, the maps, I think at least the map, the congressional map, was, was a partisan gerrymander in violation of another new provision of the state constitution, which said basically no partisan gerrymanders. Um, the, that, the Intermediate Court of Appeals issued a decision on that, I think last week, basically disagreeing with the point about the process and basically said that, in effect, that given the deadlock in the commission, it was okay for the legislature to begin the process of passing its own maps, uh, which restored the assembly map, but basically agreed that there was a partisan gerrymander for the congressional map. Uh, And there, I think they divided on that three to two. So that's going to go to the Court of Appeals, New York State's highest court. So I think conceivably they could take up the question again about whether or not the process was unconstitutional, in which case all the maps are invalid, or they could just agree with the lower court that the process was okay given the deadlock in the commission and then just focus on whether or not there was a gerrymander. Thanks for being on the show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brofault of Columbia Law School. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Two formerly married Hollywood stars suing each other for defamation. Johnny Depp is suing his ex-wife Amber Heard for $50 million over a 2018 op-ed piece she wrote in the Washington Post, referring to herself as a, quote, public figure representing domestic abuse. Heard has counterclaimed with a defamation suit of her own for $100 million. While the lawsuit centers on whether Depp was defamed in the op-ed, in four days on the stand, Depp testified about everything from childhood abuse to a near mental breakdown. Never did I myself reach the point of um, uh, striking Miss Heard in any way, nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman. Um, in my life. My guest is defamation lawyer Jeff Lewis of Jeff Lewis Law. Johnny Depp lost a British case in 2020. The actor sued the Sun newspaper for printing a headline that called him a, quote, wife beater. A judge found that there was overwhelming evidence that Depp had assaulted her repeatedly during their marriage and that he had put her in fear of her life. Did Depp testify in that case? He did testify, although in this uh, present case, he is testifying extensively. His answers are longer. He's emoting more. Everyone thinks he's suing to revive his career because he doesn't want the outcome of the British court to be the last word on these allegations. So even if he doesn't win this case, he wants all the testimony that's being videotaped and put on Twitter, that to be the final word on these allegations. That's really why he sued, to restore his career. And explain the defamation claims. Yeah, look, uh, Heard wrote this op-ed piece in the Washington Post that said she was a victim of domestic abuse. She didn't name uh, Johnny Depp by name, but uh, Johnny uh, has testified in court, and I'm sure he'll have others testify, that everybody understood who she was talking about. And by the way, she countersued for defamation. So it's not just his claims against her, but she's countersued for defamation. Now, her countersuit is based on things that his former lawyer said? Yeah, very, very unusual theory there. The theory is that Johnny Depp and his 
prior lawyer conspired to make these harmful statements about Amber Heard. One of the interesting things is when you're dealing with a public figure, plaintiff or cross-complainant, you have to prove things like malice, that the person who spoke said things without a belief they were true or reckless disregard. And here, it's an odd situation where Johnny Depp is being sued for statements made by his lawyer. Whose state of mind is that issue? Is it his lawyer's state of mind or Johnny's state of mind in terms of malice and who knew what was said was false? How can he be held responsible for something that his former lawyer said and the lawyer's not being sued? Yeah, it's very unusual theory there. Uh, the theory is under conspiracy liability. Uh, you could be liable for making an agreement with someone to do something that violates the law. You and I agreed on this podcast today to say false things about somebody. Uh, you could be liable for things that I say. What does he have to prove in his case? Well, he's got to prove that he didn't abuse her. Uh, he's got to refute. Uh, the allegation in the opening statement, the new allegation in this trial, that there was sexual assault. That's not something that came up in the prior trial in England. And the hardest thing he's got to prove is that when Amber Heard wrote this op-ed, she knew what she said was false or had reckless disregard to whether it was false. How well did he do during his testimony on direct? I think he's done very well on direct. He's brought up some things that the public's heard about for the first time, for example, his abuse uh, by his mother as a child, physical abuse. Uh, he's been very forthright about his substance abuse. And keep in mind, this case is not really about substance abuse or whether or not she accused him of substance abuse. It's about domestic violence. And he's testified how his life was destroyed by these allegations, both in terms of losing his career and on the personal front. And uh, it's been pretty, pretty impactful. One of the things that stood out as far as was her throwing a bottle at him and severing his finger. Yeah, that that uh, incident is a real headliner for a lot of reasons. First of all, there's testimony by him that he used the tip of his finger to write messages in blood on the walls after that injury. And he says that she's responsible for that injury. Uh, Amber Heard has, uh, through lawyers, cast doubt on that story, uh, suggesting that he injured himself and that she was not responsible. What problems do you see with his cross-examination? Well, in cross-examination, he has come out as somebody who is uh, explosive, who has temper issues, who abuses drugs. There's been harmful photographs of him falling asleep in a chair with ice cream uh, melting into a pool at his feet. But some uh, observers think that some of that testimony or has backfired insofar as it makes him sympathetic that Amber Heard is taking pictures of him at his lowest moments, that he was driven to the point of self-harming, he's testified to, and that he was using substances as a response to the abuse he was suffering at her hands. So I think on balance, he's done everything he's needed to do in terms of testifying and getting sympathy from a jury. And this whole case is really going to turn on her credibility, and especially these new allegations about sexual assault and whether a jury believes that that sexual assault occurred. What was the most damaging part of the cross-examination? Well, I think the most harmful testimony was a soundbite that was played. Uh, Johnny Depp uh, is heard saying to her that uh, a bloodbath is going to occur if they don't go their separate ways. That's pretty harmful. The uh, violence that he... Uh, shows in terms of uh, damaging uh, hotel rooms and uh, his kitchen 
And the, the text messages that he sends to friends describing Amber Heard are not flattering. Does he have anything besides his word to back this up? For example, with his finger, he didn't tell the doctors in the emergency room what had really happened. So does he have a problem with backing up these allegations that she was the violent one? Yeah, that's the that's the real crux of this case. In, the, in these private moments when these things happen with just she and he are there in a room alone, there is not a whole lot of corroborating testimony. And he told uh, the jury that he lied to the ER doctors to protect, basically to protect Amber Heard and not put his personal business out there. Uh, the question is, you know, will a jury believe that in the moment at the ER he was covering for her or that he was being truthful? He claims that it cost him acting jobs, but Heard's lawyer is going to claim or has claimed that the damage was already done to his career, that his career was already on a downward trajectory. That's right. You know, in every case, it uh, has to prove causation. If something the defendant did caused harm to the plaintiff. And Amber Heard's lawyers have done an effective job of showing, for example, that Disney had already decided to cut Johnny Depp out of the Pirates franchise before that op-ed ever was published. But keep in mind, to win this case, because we're talking about defamation per se, because we're, Johnny Depp has been accused of criminal conduct, domestic violence, he doesn't have to tie any of her false statements to any specific damages to win. He only has to prove causation to win a huge monetary verdict. But if all he wants is a verdict from the jury saying Johnny Depp was right and Amber Heard lied, he might get that. But without proving causation, he's not going to get much in the way of money. How will he have to prove damages? He'd have to prove, for example, that the Disney executives or maybe uh, more apt, the Warner Brothers executives that uh, made decisions about the Harry Potter franchise that they made decisions on whether to cast him or not cast him or pull production based on the op-ed and not any of the other rumors swirling him around Johnny Depp. Was there testimony that backed up his claims? We're in his case now still. Well, there's a couple of interesting uh, points there. One, there's lots of photographs of Amber Heard walking the runway at times where she claimed she was abused and had bruises all over her body, and you don't see those in the red carpet photos. The other interesting kind of side issue that's come up is an issue by a, a makeup company. You know, during opening statements, Amber Heard's lawyers stood up to the jury and held up a makeup case and said, Amber Heard used this makeup case to cover up her bruising caused by Johnny Depp. Uh, but it turns out, according to this makeup company, that particular brand and uh, of makeup didn't exist when the abuse allegedly occurred. And so that may come back to haunt uh, Amber Heard as lacking credibility in terms of the abuse. A therapist they went to said that they were mutual abusers. If that's the case, does Amber Heard win? In other words, if it's proven that they both abused each other? You know, that's a great question. I don't know why they called this witness, because the therapist did use the term mutual abuse. Now, if a jury walks away from that thinking mutual emotional abuse, well, then maybe Johnny Depp can still win. But if the jury takes that uh, testimony of that therapist to be mutual physical abuse, then his case is over. If you were the lawyer for Amber Heard, what would you advise her about her testimony coming up? She's got to be well prepared for cross-examination because the whole case comes down to her. 
I think uh, if you think that social media is an accurate read of how maybe the jury might be taking Johnny Depp's testimony, social media is very favorable as to Johnny Depp. And so what Amber Heard has to do is to prove up uh, what was promised during opening statements, meaning the sexual uh, assault allegation that's brand new. Why did this come up during the proceedings in England? Uh, why is this coming up for the first time in this trial? She's got to be prepared to answer that question. And she has to uh, come off as credible and not vindictive. And she's got to explain why, uh, in terms of all the bruising that she claims occurred, why there's no photographic evidence of that when she walked the red carpet at certain premieres. Her lawyer has released a potential witness list, which includes Elon Musk and James Franco. Are those good witnesses, or do they bring a lot of baggage with them? Yes and yes and yes. So <laughs> witnesses like this, you know, jurors can get starstruck just like anybody else. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's what these witnesses might say in hour three or four or five of their testimony after the uh, shock of seeing a celebrity on the stand wears off that's really going to count. But I also would keep in mind, I'm a trial lawyer, and trial lawyers often pack their witness lists at trial with all sorts of witnesses that they might call maybe but just because somebody's on a witness list doesn't mean they're going to show up. And most of the time, 90% of the witnesses on a witness list don't show up. So I, I wouldn't bet on Elon Musk taking it. By the way, Elon Musk's uh, deposition was never taken. As a trial lawyer, you never want to put somebody on the stand if you don't know really what they're going to say. And that rule applies doubly to Elon Musk, who's a little bit of a wild card. So I, I would be really surprised if Elon Musk testifies at trial. One other interesting issue is Johnny Depp's longtime friends with Robert Downey Jr., and I don't know if you recall, Robert Downey Jr. had some serious problems out here in California in terms of drug use, breaking into someone's house. I think he even served some time. And yet he's able to overcome all that and become a huge Hollywood star, uh, notwithstanding those issues. And I suspect Johnny Depp, with this case, is trying to follow the playbook that Robert Downey Jr. Uh, did in terms of getting the truth out there and, and rehabilitating his career. Thanks, Jeff. That's defamation lawyer Jeff Lewis of Jeff Lewis Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.